you know, look, all of those period details should recede to the background. This is all about characterization, all about location, all about serving the story. Hello, and welcome back to The Director's Cut, brought to you by the Directors Guild of America. In this episode, a world-weary detective investigates a murder in director Scott Cooper's gothic mystery, The Pale Blue Eye. The film brings us the story of a veteran detective who is hired to delve into the murder of a West Point cadet, but finds himself stalled by the cadet's code of silence. In order to solve the mystery, he enlists the help of one of their own, a young Edgar Allan Poe. In addition to The Pale Blue Eye, Cooper's other directorial credits include the feature films Hostels, Out of the Furnace, and Crazy Heart. Following a screening of the film at the DGA Theater in Los Angeles, Cooper spoke with director David O. Russell about filming The Pale Blue Eye. Listen on for their spoiler-filled conversation. So this picture is um, an incredible spell it casts. It's so, it's just like a painting. It's like a spell, like a witch's spell, which it becomes. It's, um, it's every character is singular and enchanting from this very weird period of the 1830s, which is such a fantastic weird period that you capture the weirdness of. Um, it's like pre-Civil War. It's innocent, but it's sort of isolated and weird and lonely. And West Point, as I understand it, was uh, not very impoverished at that time. Is that, and now, tell us. That's right. Uh, West Point was maybe 28 years old at that point, thought to be an academy for the science of the wealthy. Um, and and, and the, the academy ultimately um, was very close to being raised by uh, uh, President Andrew Jackson because they didn't particularly like the uh, uh, young men that they were uh, forming. And these were really uh, quite uh, intelligent young men, um, engineers. Uh, uh, so th- that was weaved uh, a little bit into, into the story. But uh, what I was most fascinated is that you have someone who's this uh, poet, someone who's prone to romantic fancies, someone who really uh, is not the ideal candidate to be at West Point and who finds himself there. And of course, he was there for a year before he was uh, summarily... Seven uh, months, I read. Yeah, that's yeah. right, uh, before he was uh, summarily uh, expelled. Um, but the Poe in, in this film, this is was for me really kind of three things. It was, um, it's of course a whodunit. It's also this uh, father and son love story where you have two men who, who kind of live on the margins of societies, who, who, who are somewhat alone, who come together and kind of forge this kinship. And then maybe even most importantly, it's a Poe origin story because we have these ideas of who Edgar Allan Poe is, uh, who is someone who's obsessed with the satanic and the occult and someone who who uh, wrote about death and tragedy and despair and grief and was a master of the macabre and someone who bequeathed to us detective and horror fiction. But I didn't want to tell that story because we, we know who that Poe is, who was Poe in his formative years 
And I'm positing that the events that take place in our narrative are ultimately what motivated him to become the writer he became. It's a fantastic idea. And now tell me about the book by Louis Bayard. Well, um, just after Crazy Heart, uh, let me back up. Much like Poe, I spent my formative years in Virginia. My father taught uh, English and literature, and uh, he himself was taught by William Faulkner, so we had lots of uh, literature. Your dad was taught by William Faulkner? He was. At uh, Oxford? At uh, the University of Virginia. Oh, wow. And we had lots of literature lying around our house, lots of Poe. Um, so at a young age, I was introduced to his stories. So after Crazy Heart, my father said, I've read the most clever novel in which a young Edgar Allan Poe, who also went to the University of Virginia and whose room was right next door to my father's. Did he get kicked out of there? Did he? he did, oh. yes, for drinking. Um, Poe was a misfit. Uh, he said, it's, it's fascinating because we have a young Poe uh, who's at the center of a detective story. Of course, I read it just, uh, uh, just as, as a lark and because my father recommended it. I thought, my God, this could be a really interesting film. But of course, there are a lot of pitfalls. A, st- a story with Poe at the center of it, certainly a detective story, which could be corny. Um, whom do you find uh, to, 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 to play the warm and witty and the humorous uh, uh, Poe, which is what he was. He was a great Southern companion. Um, and I actually adapted the screenplay after Crazy Heart. And then after Christian and I made Out of the Furnace, um, I sent him the screenplay and I said, you know, I, I think you're probably too young at this point to play this. But um, as you know, from working with Christian, Christian will say, yes, let's do this in three years or in four years. Right. So um, it was 10 or 11. And he aged, I think, perfectly into Augustus Landor. Amazing. Did your idea of the film change over those years? It did because it, it uh, as, as written as a novel, was more of a whodunit. And I thought, well, I can take these two characters, which are the central relationship in the story, Edgar Allan Poe and this kind of this uh, 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 venerable constable, um, and how can I take two men who, who are actually somewhat alike, as I mentioned earlier, who kind of operate, live on the, the margins of society, and how can I bring them together and then suffer as we know now from the film, this sense of, of heartbreak uh, from young Poe, who was an orphan, uh, who had a very uh, difficult relationship with John Allen, his benefactor. So he sees in Augustus Landor a father figure. Um, so over the course of, of, of those 10 years, and you know how it is, David, writing is rewriting, and you never cease. Um, just and, and once I have actors in mind, which... I don't know if you do this, but but I wrote Crazy Heart for Jeff Bridges without ever having met Jeff. I wrote Out of the Furnace for Christian. Um, then I start to think about, well, I make really American films, but I feel like all of these great British actors who are in the movie that I've long admired, Timothy Spall and Toby Jones and and Simon McBurney and, and uh, young Harry Melling, I thought, how can I get them into a film? And, and they can handle this language so well, and they have such great faces, and it, they feel very period. And it doesn't feel like so often when you see, a, or at least for me, a period picture. It feels like actors in dress-up. However, it's a very amazing world you've created from this cast. I just want to name some of the cast because they're so amazing. And they're very specific faces that do yeah. feel like from another time. Many of them are British. Am I right about that? Uh, most all of them, except for some of the younger cadets, and of course, my mentor Robert Duvall. Yes, because Robert lives in Virginia. 
He does. Uh, we did a, a few films together uh, when I was amidst my unremarkable career as an actor. And then uh, I was married at uh, Mr. Duvall's estate. Uh, he produced Crazy Heart. Um, he reads all of my scripts. I speak to him two or three times a week, if not every day still. And he read this and he really wanted to play uh, Jean Pepe. And I said, you know, I have this idea of someone who, who, who feels almost like uh, um, uh, someone, you know, one of the great Russians, one of the great Russian writers, uh, Dostoevsky or whoever it might have been. And, and, uh, and Duvall said, I really want to play that part. And how do you tell Robert Duvall, no, I never would. Did he have a beard in that scene? Uh, yeah. Yeah, because I mean, it's, so, it's so witchy, that scene. It's so good. It's so witchy. And you probably didn't recognize him at first. No, I, I thought it was amazing because I, I was just immersed in it. I was immer That's what I love about the film. It's so immersive. Wow. The whole environment of it. What you, you just the, the whole world of it. The color palettes. Masa, Masanabu Takanyanagi, who also shot Silver Linings Playbook. Yes. Um, did just such a gorgeous job. Oh, thanks. Man. What did you guys shoot on? Well, it's interesting that you and I share uh, Masa. Um, You've worked with a lot of great TPs, man. I've been blessed. Yes. And so, so what? what so we on? shot uh, digitally, yes. believe it or not, uh, the Alexa, and we used some vintage uh, lenses that, uh, because when we first spoke about the look of the film, I said to Masa that I wanted to feel almost black and white yep. in color, but almost black and white, essentially, yep. very controlled color palette, and you know you have to like really be very specific with your production designer, certainly with, with costumes, with um, anything that you're going to see in the frame. And it was a really Stephania difficult... Stefania Sella, is that your... Stefania Cella. Yep. Have, you, have you worked with her before? She designed uh, Black Mass. She uh, often works with uh, Paolo Sorrentino. She's Italian. You should see her work in The Great Beauty, which is... Extraordinary. Extraordinary. Yeah. She's a really, really wonderful uh, production designer. Stefania, um, our costume designer Kasia Willick and Mamone that uh, my pal Bennett Miller works with her quite what, a bit. What did he do with her? Capote? All of his films. Oh, yeah. Okay. Capote and uh, Moneyball. Foxcatcher. Yeah, 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 yeah. So it's really about making sure that we're all rowing in the same direction because, you know, so often, as I mentioned a few moments earlier, when I see period pictures, I, I feel like I'm watching a movie. And I said, and I say this whether it's a contemporary film like Crazy Heart or Out of the Furnace or if it's period like Hostiles or um, Black Mass or this, I say, uh, you know, look, all of those period details should recede to the background. This is all about characterization, all about location, all about uh, serving the story. Uh, as wonderful as they are, and as you know, these are among the best uh, who practice what they do. So it's really important that they buy into that because... It's a little bit like Duvall says to me about acting in awards. He says, you know, Scott, the most acting is the best acting. That's what wins, which, of course, he doesn't subscribe to that. But it's like that with production design and camera work. So you have to have people who, who really believe in your idea and your vision of restraint. Yes. And nevertheless, it's Chris Peck, who I love, who did. Great. Who prop did. master. The prop master, everything. The Did actors. he do uh, Amsterdam? Yes. yes. Uh, just, just, if you haven't seen Amsterdam, you got to see that. Movie. Thank you. Beautiful. Just, just brilliant. Everything that the actors touch. And I still feel like the things that they hold and they touch, there's some very specific weird things in the film. Wh which things were the most important to you? The, do, the, do, the film feels like a time travel to me, which I like. Uh, meaning it doesn't feel dusty 
for period, but it feels like I've gone to another world. Oh, good. Well, that's, you know, when, when you're trying to create a Gothic world and you're trying to serve uh, both visually and thematically Poe's work without it being um, uh, too obvious, although I do have a very tight shot of a raven on a branch. I wasn't sure. Never knew that the Baltimore Ravens were named for Edgar Allan Poe, who, right. who died yeah. in Baltimore. Yes, I, I learned that from your production. Though. Yes. Thank yeah, you. yeah, yeah. Thank you. Yeah. So um, I would say, uh, because all, all props are really based around character, and I would say it was Christian Bale's truncheon, his baton. Very specific. Which was in, very specific with a with a brass cap. was incredibly heavy. He, Whether you saw it or not in any scene, he always carried it. And it Perhaps the him. biggest, most important breadcrumb of all. In the, in the opening. Yes. Yeah. I mean, hopefully, if you, you, you say you, you say that he leads the breadcrumbs there, which you realize retroactively. Yes. And the, the film has these two epic endings. You have this incredible ending in flames in the witch house. Where Lucy Boynton is amazing. Yeah, she's great. Um, she's very, very committed. But hopefully, if you, if you happen to see the picture again, you'll see that... Um, that Christian and I have, have, yes, have left a trail of breadcrumbs and uh, of his performance starting from really the second, third, well, third shot of the film when he's cleaning the blood from the truncheon. Yeah, in the river. And then he hears, yeah, and he yeah. hears the French horn. Yeah. You think he's just cleaning something in the river. Right. And then you realize he's killed all the people who got his daughter. Oh, did I wreck that for somebody? Um, so, so, Gillian so, uh, Anderson is incredible. Uh, yes. J- 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 my God, it's so great when people get to be witchy like that, and th- and that Lucy Boynton gets to be so trippy yes. with her seizures and then her behavior, yeah. and then Harry Fully Melling, true. who you know, I know he doesn't want it on his resume because he's moved way beyond it. He's done much more work. Um, he's he's moved on, and he, but he was the boy who was mean to Harry Potter, the the the, uh, the, the, the cousin you know, in Harry Potter, which I saw with my kids. And he's very different now. He's very skinny. He was born to play Edgar Allan Poe. Yes, he was. No, I mean, he looks exactly like Edgar Allan yeah, Poe. Yeah, it yeah. almost seems like reincarnated. You can't make somebody's eyes tilted like that. No. <laughs> right? right? No, he was born exactly with the whole forehead and everything. Yes, exactly and, we, and we actually shaved yeah. his hair back uh, to, to accentuate his forehead. But, but I first, I didn't see the, those Harry Potter, Potter uh, portrayals, but I did they see They bear him. no resemblance to each other. No, but I did see them uh, in in the Ballad of Buster Scruggs, the Coen yes, Brothers film, yes. where he played the limbless performer that Liam Neeson carried around the American West espousing Shakespeare. And, uh, and I said to Christian, I said, that kid is Edgar Allan Poe. He is, and he also has the soulfulness pouring out yes. of his face, so it comes from inside. It's a tough part to play, and his performance, and you know this because you direct actors very well, those two performances are completely opposite. Christian's very restrained. Uh, very subtle in this film, uh, very interior. Harry is, uh, uh, he gesticulates, he has um, uh, a lot of dialogue, he's, he's poetic, he's warm, he's humorous, he's witty. Um, and, and trying to uh, harness both of those very different performances, which were quite necessary, um, both on the day and then editing, was uh, a great challenge, fun. Let's talk about the magnificent, the one, the only center of the movie, Christian Bale. Mm. So, so Christian um, is, is, is a singular actor. Yes. Who Robert Duvall says is one of the two actors. He's known him since Newsies. Yeah. Who acted without studying acting. Him and Billy Bob Thornton. That's right. He did that, say that. The yeah. two that he names. And um, 
he said that uh, Christian, it, everything feels authentic that comes out of him. Yeah. And so his, it's just his mere presence holds the film uh, completely from the very, he says a majestic presence about him. And when people go to him, you feel like, yeah, that's the guy you should go to, yes. uh, who you're going to get to come over and do this <laughs> stuff. And then you like when he's in the presence of every single suspect of the movie and he's learning progressively weirder things. Tell me about that. Well, uh, look, you've worked with Christian three times and, and, and I've said this publicly uh, a number of times. Um, the performances that Christian gives in your films, um, The Fighter, American Hustle, Amsterdam, the performances he gives in, in, uh, with directors he's, he, he, he works with uh, numerous times, Chris Nolan, Batman and The Prestige, or, or Adam McKay uh, with uh, Vice and, and The Big Short. Uh, and then and in my films, we all get something different from him, which shows just his vast range and how facile as an actor that he is. Um, with, he's, he's different in all three of your films, physically, emotionally, physiologically, same in, in, in theirs. And in ours, um, because we both know him so well, I write for a very specific internal place, um, uh, where the performances are more muted and quiet. And an actor like Christian is so, uh, I mean, look, he's been doing it since he's 12 years old. He has the ability to be able to, you know, to rein all of that in and just trust that that's going to come through. And for someone like Augustus Landor, who has made his career on observing and uh, allowing other people to essentially reveal their true selves, he needed it to give a very quiet and restrained and very watchful performance so that he could take note of everyone else who ultimately he's asking himself who are committing these crimes after my crimes who's desecrating these bodies this is when you, if you happen to see it again and Timothy Spall is interviewing him for the first time in in the uh, superintendent's uh, quarters in West Point in the first five minutes of the film and he says that a young man has been hanged and his heart has been carved from his chest. You can see Christian's performance there. He's like, this is a detective who's seen everything, right? Every type of crime. But you see that he is, he's questioning, well, how is this possible? I've committed this crime, which he doesn't give that up, but someone is following in my footsteps and desecrating these bodies and in very Poe-esque form, removing their hearts. Who's messing with my perfect handiwork? Yes. Uh, Christian is an entire soul. So when you're talking to him about a role, mm -hmm. you feel him absorbing it into the uh, furnace, to quote your other film, that is inside of him, yeah. which is a lifetime of personal stories, a lifetime of feelings and memories that he shares very generously. He always shares his associations with you. They're very personal. Everything yeah. is turned personal. His soul and his spirit are open. And, and he, he brings his soul and his spirit and his life experiences into the character, which automatically makes it a five-dimensional character. Yeah. Because you're hearing the memories, the, the, the feelings. I was shocked when I saw the daughter in the film because she even, you know, I, I, I just thought, oh, my goodness, this is so close to home for him. Well, of course. That's yeah. why I, yeah, yeah uh, specifically chose her so that it would make his job easier and seeing his, his young daughter going through this yeah. assault and then ultimately taking her own life and... And, and she does happen to look... Uh, Fantastically shot sequence when, oh, he, when he's man. watching her stand on the cliff. Yeah, she's uh, a very brave actress, this young uh, Hadley Robinson. She um, never once was concerned. I mean, look, she, she's 
She's, uh, uh, she's actually an Adam McKay show, Showtime. She plays young Jeannie Buss. But, you know, she's not nearly as experienced as most people in the cast. But those scenes with Christian, she was so open and so vulnerable. And those moments on, you know, at the edge of the cliff, uh, uh, she knew how important those were going to be in the film, and, and there are a lot of traps in those moments. And she was able to avoid all of them uh, from, a, uh, from a sentimentality standpoint, from um, an overwrought uh, trap that, that a, a lesser skilled actor would fall into generally. Um, so I, I'm pretty blessed from Christian all the way down that I had speaking really of tra- great actors. Speaking of traps or the art of suspense or the art of carrying the audience, mm that incredible suspended moment in time when you don't know what's going to happen to her and you so feel Christian's heart not wanting her to step off the cliff. And he's very gently, if he moves towards her, she may go. No question. So he can't move towards her. So he's very gently calling to her, which felt so personal to me. And then I was afraid afraid he was going to do it. When you repeat that moment, the very end of the yes, film. I yeah, thought, yeah. oh no, I don't want him to do it. Well, we leave it. It's a real cliffhanger. Yeah. You know, he's, he's, literally, literally. Yes, literally. <laughs> but 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 that particular moment when she goes over, he and I talked about what his reaction would be. So often, I mean, look, who, I pray to God, no one ever has to really live through something like that, or in many of my films, moments of uh, difficult pain and and uh, grief. But uh, his performance, if you happen to see it again, is, is, is again, so uh, kind of heartbreakingly restrained. Um, and uh, I think he allows the audience to do a lot of the work for you, which, you know, great actors do so often, certainly in moments like that. Um, I thought it was just that whole sequence was really beautiful. I feel every performed. molecule of his emotion. Yeah. I, I, don't, I don't feel there's any blankness there whatsoever. No, no, I, no, no. I feel enveloped by his emotion. Yeah. And, and his wish for her to live. Yeah. Yeah. And, and he, he brought this up, which, um, which is interesting. He said, you know, Scott, the three films that we've done, Out of the Furnace and Hostiles and this, he said there's a thread of ethical revenge um, that kind of courses through, uh, through all of them, which um, somehow had escaped me. He commits murder in the third act in all three of them, doesn't he? Uh, I, guess, Maybe, I guess he does. I, I know he does in Hostiles. Yes, uh, avenging the, the, uh, the famous the famous yeah. murder that's all done on his back. Yes, that's the, right. I think they should have an Academy Award for best back best acting. Best back acting. No, no right. because there's many scenes I remember yeah. that are iconic. And I'll never forget yeah. his back from Hostiles, yeah. how, he, how he plunges the knife into somebody. And his back communicates. Yeah. It communicates everything. The then, shot, yes. the way you yeah. composed it, oh, the composition of your shots, which in this movie is impeccable and equal to any painter of that time. Yeah. Uh, church or the other Hudson River painters. Yeah, which um, I looked at. And those locations are absolutely breathtaking. So so the outside of Pittsburgh completely accommodated what exactly another era. Yeah, it's it's we shot in some some fairly unspoiled places. So often when you go to Boston or you go to uh, Philly or you go to wherever you shoot, oh yeah, David O. Russell shot Silver Linings here. Oh yeah, David shot American Hustle here. And you're like, nope, I got to go somewhere else. <laughs> and then, uh, and that happens a lot. You know, David makes a lot of movies. So um, I always ask to see locations that haven't been shot. And it doesn't make it easy on the crew, uh, for sure. Um, and they're generally more expensive because they aren't, you know, within the, within the zone. Um, and this film was a particularly difficult film to make because it was incredibly cold at times. 
minus eight, minus four oh, below yeah. zero. Yeah, the lenses were freezing. And, and another thing about Christian Bale is that, um, of course, I'm outfitted in, you know, my Arcteryx Sub-Zero, uh, uh, um, you know, coat and, and pant and, and, and boots. And Christian's in, in wolves. And it's, in, it's probably too cold to even be shooting. And he never complains. And therefore, nobody else complains. He's an incredible stoic from Wales. He's tough as nails. Yes. I didn't mean that for that to rhyme. Uh, but no, but he's, he's, he's an unbelievable, and he makes you feel bad if you ever think of complaining. Not that, he, <laughs> not, not that he wishes for you to feel bad, but he makes you think about it twice. You're like, well, he's not complaining. Um, and De Niro's the same way. I remember saying right? to Bob once at three in the morning, how can you stand here at three in the morning? He goes, well, all these other people are doing it. Why can't I do it? And I was like, oh, good answer. Um, but also also a very humble answer. Yeah. Very, and, and I'm sure Christian had no long johns under there because he wants to feel like the character feels. Yeah, and it was the same thing with Hostiles when we were shooting at nine, 10,000 feet above sea level and there were torrential uh, monsoonal rains and rattlesnakes everywhere. And he is just unbothered by anything. And it really helps set the tone and, and, and the crew see that the number one on the call sheet and whom I think is the finest actor of our generation. Um, no doubt. Yeah. He just, uh, he sets the tone and everybody's like, okay, well, we're just going to cowboy up. He's a captain who tells everybody, this is okay, enjoy it. Let's yeah. do this and enjoy it. And we're lucky to be here no matter the circumstances, which is very inspiring to every other actor on the set because they're all very excited to act with him. I, um, I also thought uh, Timothy Spall was oh. amazing in your oh, picture. Man. He's one of my favorites. Yeah, another Harry Potter guy, even though you haven't Is seen that Harry right? Potter. Yes. I very, know him from Mike a, Lee's movies. He, he plays, he plays a Mike rat in Harry Potter, and he turns wow. into a rat. Is Toby uh, yeah. Jones in Harry Potter too? No, no, Toby Jones also in another incredible face. Toby Jones. Great. Absolutely great. Right, right out of, he was out of the other Truman Capote movie, not Capote. Yes, and he was great in that. Yes. Infamous, yeah. Um, there's five million things to talk about here. Let's talk about... Um, how did you shoot the flaming ending with all the falling embers and the family in the middle of everything and, and uh, Harry Melling strapped to a table, still in love with Lucy Boynton? Yes. Uh, even though she's willing to sacrifice him physically. Yes, that's right. <laughs> Very carefully. I mean, look, that was a scene that um, from Fade In, uh, my screenplay, I thought to myself, look, if this sequence doesn't work, the whole movie isn't going to work. Um, and I'm sure as people watch the film, there'll be a, a, a segment of, of the audience who is pulled out of the film, um, uh, maybe not understanding that, that Poe was obsessed with the satanic and the occult and rituals. Um, so if you're going to make a film, certainly an or, a Poe origin story, you have to have that sequence in the film. If what I'm saying is these are the events that lead him to become the master of the macabre. So I think I had three, maybe four days to shoot that sequence. We built the stage. Um, um, Tracy Landon, I'm not sure you worked yes, with Tracy. Yes. She's fantastic. Wonderful. She's a great um, uh, producer, uh, UPM, line producer. She brought in a, a really great crew to help me. Tracy, are you happen to be here? No. Yes, I am, Scott. There hey, Tracy. Hire Tracy Landon. Tracy, superhero. Yes. Mover of mountains. Yes. So, uh, yeah, that was the not an easy. Who makes it all happen. Not yes. an easy shot to uh, sequence to shoot, especially when you have uh, fire. Um, so you have to be incredibly careful. But you have an actor in Lucy Boynton 
uh, playing Leah, who is so committed to that. I mean, in term, not only learning all of the Latin incantation, which there was a lot of it, but standing under things that are going to be falling and things that are going to be burning and still maintain the type of focus that she had. I who mean, did your special effects with those things? Uh, Jake Braver um, was my visual effects supervisor. Um, Jeremy, um, what's Jeremy's last name, Tracy? Hayes. Hayes. Thank God Tracy's here. Yes, thank you, Tracy. <laughs> Jeremy Hayes. Um, but, but, but truly, if that sequence didn't work, um, the film wasn't going to work. Well, uh, a couple of more things I want to say. We only have a minute left. Um, although I understand when Billy Friedkin came here, he said he would speak for an hour, but I won't do that. Yes, he uh, did. So, which is a great privilege. So the film is so beautiful, so immersive, such a dream. It's like living in a dream the way cinema ought to be, I think. And the dream is cast by Christian and every other actor in the piece, as well as your framing, your meticulous framing and direction um, from the sets to the color palette to the blue cadet uniforms against mm. the otherwise sort of black and white background. I do have an interesting, um, fun challenge that we could consider. Instead of saying when you hear that I've used a location, um, because I find this interesting, you could you could take up the challenge of shooting it in a way that nobody would recognize. Right. Because I've shot there some locations that. and somebody tells me this was used in The Sting. This was used in The Godfather. And I go, no, where? And then I look at it and it looks completely unrecognizable to me. Yeah. So that's kind of cool as well. Um, if you don't want to go 45 minutes outside the zone. But, or but, farther. But, but you got the gorge. So, so did you live yes. outside the zone? Then no, you, no, we lived in... Uh, we lived in uh, in, in Pittsburgh. Uh, we shot a few interiors in Pittsburgh, but largely all the exteriors were 45 minutes, hour, hour and a half longer, um, up northwestern Pennsylvania, central Pennsylvania. Uh, and the closer we got to Lake Erie, the colder it got. My God, that wind that just comes off is just so incredibly bracing. Uh, but, you know, I always feel like landscape, atmosphere, um, location are really important character in my films, whether it's the desert southwest of uh, in Crazy Heart or the still country of Out of the Furnace. Certainly when you're making a film, like a road movie in Hostiles, you start in New Mexico and you end in uh, Montana, this. I think it really helps the audience lose themselves, become immersed in a story without feeling like they're watching a film. And then just giving themselves over to the movie, into the characters, into the, into the emotion. I absolutely loved it. I'm told we have to wrap up. I loved it from the opening of it. Oh, I, I loved you, the, the spell that the film casts. I loved the visual world that you bring us into. I, I loved every single weird 1830s thing about it that, that I, just, I just drank it all up. So thank you for this beautiful, soulful film. Uh, Scott Cooper. My version of Downton Abbey. Thank you. Yeah, a, uh, thank you. That was great, Thanks for listening to another DGA Q&A. The Director's Cut is available wherever you listen to podcasts. And please share, subscribe, rate, and review. We'd love to hear your feedback, and you can help fellow film buffs find the show. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time. This podcast is produced by the Directors Guild of America. 